The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Let me just say what a what a, an honor it is to address this group. Um, I was telling uh, Ms. Wolf when she called me up and gave me the invita- invitation, I said, I'm not really a socialist in any dogmatic sense of the word. I don't really know what I am politically. And she said, that's okay. We just want you to come and tell your story. But actually, it's not true because there is a certain amount of socialism in my DNA. When my father died, uh, he left his library and I I took all his books and incorporated them into mine. And, And one of the books is called The Making of a Socialist, the Tommy Douglas story. Uh, Tommy Douglas was a young man who graduated from the University of Chicago uh, in the heart of the Depression and went up to be a Baptist minister in a little town called Weyburn, Saskatchewan. And my father uh, was one of his Sunday school students. Uh, At that time, and I don't want to go into too much uh, detail on this, but it it was at the heart of the Depression and farmers were not able to make their mortgage payments on their land. And so, of course, the banks didn't know what else to do except to foreclose since they were sort of teetering on the the eve of destruction themselves. And so what uh, Tommy Douglas did was went around to all the pastors and got them to agree that when they had the auction, that they would buy the farm. Only one person would bid and they would bid one dollar. Buy the farm and sell it back to the original owner. And he managed to get a lot of people through the depression that way. He eventually got so involved in politics that his deacons told him that he needed to choose. And so he decided to run uh, for politics and became the premier of Saskatchewan, which is like a governor, and eventually went on to lead the New Democratic Party, which is uh, Canada's smallest socialist party. Uh, And was recently voted the greatest Canadian of the 20th century, which is uh, kind of neat. And so I realized that he had a big impact on my dad. Uh, My dad always voted for the NDP, and I think uh, that had a big impact on me and partly explains why I'm so strange and get involved in in these strange stories. Uh, (laughs) Like my uh, Baptist preacher, forebearer, T.C. Douglas, I'm I'm not your typical Baptist minister. But anyway, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, experiences that we've had and sort of focus a little bit on Gina. I noticed a couple of people have Gina 6 t-shirts. Uh, thank you for being here. Obviously, you were probably there on the 20th or you wouldn't have the t-shirt, 20th of September. But uh, I got in, involved in Gina after we, we did the Tulia drug sting thing and finally got some justice there. And we were involved in a lot of other cases. After Tulia made such a big splash, we started getting calls from all over the place. I interceded on behalf of a family in a little town called Church Point, Louisiana, uh, where uh, a housewife and three of her sons were accused of being drug kingpins. And all of the evidence against them came from convicted drug dealers in the federal system who were being paid largely in uh, five-year increments. If you testify against this family, we'll cut five years off your draconian federal uh, sentence. And since there's no parole in the federal system, that was quite an inducement to perjury. We were able to get that, fa- that case overturned when a couple of witnesses or a couple of uh, inmates who were going to be witnesses came forward when they realized that these, these fa- this family was 
didn't fit the dealer profile and admitted that they had seen people getting together, sort of having perjury parties behind bars, getting their stories together and what have you. And a federal judge with a good conscience named Tucker Melanson dropped all the charges. So that was just, that had just happened when I got the call um, about Gina. In fact, one of the attorneys who had represented the Cologne family uh, emailed me uh, a plea that came from the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana. They had been contacted by some of the Gina families and um, this organization that's based in New Orleans, the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana, was swamped at the moment. They, they couldn't do anything directly. So they just sort of made a summary of the basic facts and emailed it out to all the lawyers on their list hoping that somebody would come and uh, maybe give some pro bono help to these kids. They got two responses to the, to the email. One was from a lawyer who was ticked off at the very suggestion that any defense attorney wouldn't give good representation to these kids. And the other person was me. <laughs> and I said, uh, talked to a fellow named Derwin Bunton there in Louisiana, and I said, what are the facts? And he sort of related to me what I already knew from reading the email. And I said, well, do you know more than that? And he said, that's all I know. Would you like me to put you in touch with the families? And I said, no, put the families in touch with me. And so within five minutes, I had gotten two phone calls uh, from Casepla Bailey and John Jenkins, two of the parents. And about a week later, this would have been in January of 2007, I found myself driving uh, into Louisiana uh, finding my way on these back roads, and, and anybody who's been to Gina knows it's in the middle of nowhere. You don't, it's not on the way to anything. Uh, <laughs> and I pulled into town, and I, I sat down with some of the families and some of the defendants uh, and sort of got their story. And then I went and tried to figure out what was going on in the rest of the community. I went and talked to the pastor of the White First Baptist Church. Um, and... Uh, his name was Dominic DiCarlo. And I said, that's an odd name for a Baptist minister. I said, I bet you started out Catholic. And he said, well, yeah, I did. And I said, uh, well, how did you become a Baptist? And he looked at, it, at me as if I was crazy. And he said, I got saved. <laughs> so I kind of knew where he was coming from. Uh, and I, I spent an hour and a half trying to convince him that what was happening to these kids was unjust. And he couldn't see it. And it wasn't for any lack of goodwill. He was just looking through uh, his own white southern lenses. And then I went and talked to the <coughs> fellows, uh, Sammy and, uh, um, well, the Franklin father and son team, uh, who were editing the Gina Times. And they had written some really scurrilous things about the Gina Six. And I tried to get them uh, to see that what was happening was wrong and hoping that they'd put some pressure on the DA. I didn't really think I was going to be successful, but I wanted to give these guys a chance to look at it from an objective point of view, which of course is my point of view, and then to write accordingly. Uh, of course, I didn't get anywhere with them either. And then I went over to the library and I read every article that had been written, not just about this case, but about the hanging of the nooses on the tree. And it struck me that when the noose issue came out, it started a, a very minor controversy just within a 50-mile radius of Gina. 
um, and there was some uh, upset. A lot of the family members in the black community were just utterly outraged that these nooses had been hung in the tree. Um, right the day after, a young African-American student had asked if he could sit under that tree, which was on the traditionally white side of the school courtyard. And nobody in the white community could give any credence to that at all. And another thing that was obvious to me was that there was no linkage in the way the story was being told in the media, either in Gina or also the, the small amount of coverage it had received in nearby Alexandria, between the noose hanging and the assault on Justin Barker. The two had no connection whatsoever. So I took Gisepla Bailey and, and she took me into the lockup, the jail there, in, which is in the courthouse in Gina. And she introduced me as a pastor friend, and I had my Bible under my arm, which uh, in the Bible Belt South gives you entree. And I was <laughs> dressed up in a suit and tie, and we went up and talked to Michael Bell and, and uh, Robert Bailey. And they gave me the story. They said right after they hung those nooses, and they talked about the tension. This whole school was on lockdown. Um, the day and a few days after that. And when the school board decided to give the kids a slap on the wrist and to call it an innocent prank, um, then things really got hot. So hot, in fact, that the principal had to call an assembly and brought everybody into the auditorium. And the district attorney got up and basically told the kids to cut it out. That was enough. And then he took out his pen. He said, with a stroke of this pen, I can make your lives disappear. And when I heard that, and that certainly had not been in, in the newspaper, I was just appalled. And it was obvious to me, and then Robert told me that immediately after that, some of the, the white redneck kids started driving through the black end of town with their beer bottles sort of, you know, celebrating as if they had, they had won some big contest uh, because their side of the story had been validated or vindicated by the, the power structure in the town. And so a, a number of fights, altercations between these black athletes, and it wasn't just black students per se, it was black athletes, male athletes, and this small group of redneck kids who had grown up in an all-white environment out in the sticks and then had been bussed into Gina for high school. And that's where the tension was. And these, the, the, the violence was gradually escalating all the time. It got a little bit more overt, a little bit more dangerous, until somebody burned the school down. And then Robert told me the night after that, I walked into this dance, and this white guy came up to me and said, are you Robert Bailey? And before I could even answer, he just slammed his fist right into my face, and then a bunch of his buddies jumped on me. And then, you know, uh, that, there was an altercation, and the boy who threw the first punch uh, was charged with misdemeanor battery. And that's sort of the way it went. Uh, and so I, just by putting the story together and telling it sequentially, I was able to get people who had eyes to see what was happening here. And the reason I did that is because in Tulia, that was what had to happen. When I first learned about Tulia, the Tulia drug sting, it was in the local paper. And there was this article that said, Tulia streets cleared of garbage. And so what did I do? I went down to my Southern Baptist Sunday School class, and I said, I'm really upset about this. In Southern Baptist Sunday School classes, you have a little prayer and share at the beginning of the class. And I, I, I offered this as a prayer concern. I said, I'm really upset 
that these people are being called scumbags. I don't know anything about the case, but I have always believed that you're supposed to be considered innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And this guy across the table from me, he just went red. And there was just molten indignation burning in his eyes. And he said, just like this, they are guilty and they're all going to jail. Well, that kind of put the kibosh on that. After the class was over, this local uh, agribusiness manager took me aside and he said, well, you see, the problem is that we got these black guys and they think that they're gods just because they used to score a lot of touchdowns back in the day. And they think they can mess with their drugs and mess with our girls and get away with it. And we had to do something. And I suddenly realized that this was not about drugs. And what has happened in America, and one of the reasons why young, especially poor, street-savvy black males are so vulnerable, is that we don't have enough education opportunities. We don't have enough jobs that pay well for people who have been unable or who have been unwilling to adapt to our post-industrial economy. It used to be, in Tulia for instance, just to be very quick in, in summing up, that there were all kinds of jobs for unskilled, uneducated people, white, black, Hispanic, whatever. But when the agricultural economy fell apart, there no longer were these jobs. It used to be that if you were out in Sunset Edition, and that comes from the phrase, nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in this town. There was a sunset edition across the tracks where you had to live. No, no indoor plumbing, no sewage system, and no law enforcement presence whatsoever. There were a whole string of bootleg bars in this dry community where selling alcohol was supposedly illegal, but they let the black folks do it. There was gambling, there was prostitution, uh, there was all sorts of stuff going on and a lot of violence. There would be several murders there every year in a population of about 500 people, but nobody was ever charged. In other words, law enforcement just ignored this community. But after the uh, bottom fell out of the agricultural economy and there was no longer a need for these people, then law enforcement started to focus obsessively on the poor black end of town and they used the drug war as a way of transferring people out of town and into the uh, penitentiary. And that is what is happening all over America. That is why we had, I don't know, 30 to 50,000 people descend on Gina, Louisiana. It wasn't as if these people had, had nooses hanging in trees in their hometown, but something awful had happened to a young man in their community. There's a reason why 99% of the people who came to Gina were African American. This isn't happening in anything like the same way uh, in uh, European and even Hispanic uh, neighborhoods. This is something that is impacting the African American community in a completely disproportionate way. And so they understood that there was something wrong. But just in conclusion, um, I, I want to say that we need to give people a language and a way of analyzing the situation so that people understand why so many people are being nailed and dragged off to prison. It isn't because people are concerned about drugs. 
In fact, the, the criminal justice system needs to have a drug economy because that gives them the perfect opportunity for identifying the people who need to be in prison. And so the very economic situation that creates an underground drug economy uh, is something that the criminal justice system, excuse me, the criminal justice system has seized upon as a way of validating the whole public policy of mass incarceration that has made America into the incarceration nation. And so I would just urge you to be very patient with people and help them understand why all this is happening. And hopefully we'll have a little bit more time to talk about some of the mechanics of wrongful prosecution a little bit later. But thank you very much for being such an attentive audience. Um, I just wanted to make sure that people knew that the outcome of the Tulia case was that all the, um, um, the people were released and the charges were dropped. And a lot of that was due to the work that Friends of Justice um, did. So I just wanted to make sure people, there was a victory in that case. I just want to make sure. Well, thank you. First of all, it's good to see each and every one of you that is here. And this is not really my professional to stand in front of anyone and make a uh, comment, well, and talk to you, but hey, I have no qualms over it. <laughs> all of you look so beautiful out there and so contented. And sometimes, you know, we sort of get up tight as to what is transpiring in our immediate area. So rather than being that in that uh, sense, relax and be yourself. In other words, we are not so tense that we cannot uh, concentrate and comprehend what is being said or done. Now, just to sort of loosen you up a little, maybe I was listening to some of the remarks that he, the preacher here, had made and. I'm not one to tell jokes or anything. Usually when I tell a joke and when the punchline comes, they, everyone is waiting for it. <laughs> and so it was, there was this Baptist preacher, and his, he had a son. He was a real, real, real smart son, and uh, he, was, uh, he was in high school, though, so his son was, and, but he had long hair. He let his hair grow, and the preacher, his father didn't particularly care for that, and he, in the process, he got his driver's license, the son did, and there was, he asked his father, he said, now, Dad, I need, I'd like to use the car on weekends. He said, well, son, I tell you what, you improve your grades and everything and come up with uh, good marks and cut your hair and I will consider you using the car. And he, okay, at the next uh, grading session, he had good grades, it was an improvement and it also he told him that you have to read the Bible now and uh, get, some, get some understanding about the Bible and so forth. And when his father, he came back to his father, he said, okay, father, I'm ready to, uh, to uh, I'd like to use the car. And he said, well, have you done your assignments that I gave you? He said, yes, my grades have improved. My, I've read the Bible and uh, I have determined that there was Jesus. Uh, he had long hair. This is one of the things that I would like to <laughs> use as uh, <laughs> use as uh, my uh, example. Said Jesus had long hair. Said Moses had long hair, and there were numerous of other disciples and so forth with long hair. And now, is there any reason I cannot keep my hair and use the car? 
he said, well, I tell you what, son, all of, they, all of them had long hair, but everywhere they went, they walked. So, <laughs> but anyway, that, that's, uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to make mention of some of the things that have transpired in uh, my life, which includes Kenneth Foster, Jr. Now, this may not be in any chronological order or anything, but I will bring you some high points as to what have happened. I'm not going to try to give you the entire story as to what has really occurred, but I will just give you high points of it that may give us an idea that may cause us to think along the injustice that certain individuals get because of their race, creed, or color. My grandson, occasionally I may say son instead of grandson, but I'm referring to Kenneth Foster, Jr. I had just finished high school and I had just begun to, he had just registered in one of the local colleges there in San Antonio. And he was one of these individuals that liked to, he was musically inclined that he wanted to be a rap artist, he wanted to make his records and so forth and I purchased equipment for the sound systems and so forth, whereas he and a number of his friends would get together and I provided a place for him to practice his music and so forth. Anyway, he was, he, one uh, Saturday, he decided to go out and look, get some individuals that would rap along with him. One of the persons knew of two or three other college students that were going that were in the that could do and could help him on that. So they got together that Saturday night and they started riding around and they were going to come in and do some singing. I call it singing or rapping. The familiarization of that terminology is not necessarily in my vocabulary, but <laughs> I will say they were singing or they were going to. And in the process, at that age, he had just turned 18, and they, he, there were some girls, they were looking for, to be out with girls and so forth, and to make it short, on their way home, there was this uh, girl that they saw that was, well, flimsily dressed, she had shorts on, in other words, she was a nightclub dancer or something, and they made a remark at her, and so she sort of responded and said, uh, no, I don't want to be, I don't know. So anyway, they didn't, uh, they drove off. And one of the individuals said, wait, let's go back. I'd like to ask her something. And so this person gets out of the car. Anyway, she was going up a driveway, and he went there and wanted to talk to her. And I guess they had a reasonable conversation. However, another individual, a person, came down the driveway and intervene. I don't know what the conversation was or anything and in the process, like I said, I'm going to short circuit it here. They got in some disagreement and this other person that had come down, the, oh incidentally they were white and the one that was with my son, they were all black. Okay. This person, from what the uh, black person said, said he reached in his uh, coat and uh, he heard a click or something, and but it just so happened Mauricio had a gun also, so he pulled it out and accidentally shot him and killed him instantaneously. 
So, okay, let's leave it at that. However, this person that was killed was the son of a prominent attorney there in San Antonio. And boy, did that have an adverse effect upon the case in its entirety. They, as I say, I'm going to make it as short as I possibly can. They had a trial. They tried both of them together simultaneously sitting there at this in the same courtroom and they convicted both of them found them guilty and gave both of them the death penalty now just a couple of things that happened there I knew the father of this of the person that was killed of the of the uh, of the hood he was there in the courtroom walking all around yeah, I saw him go to the judge in fact I wanted to go, I wanted to see the judge myself. And I went there in his chamber and I asked his secretary, I said, may I see the judge? He said, well, no, he can't talk to you now. And I, with my little nose, I'm with my nose, I sort of glanced in his uh, office there. And there he and LaHood were sitting there discussing, well, I don't know, they could have been discussing the case. I don't know what it was, but I don't think it was ethical. Maybe it was good to talk to friends. Uh, however, he, I don't think it was the appropriate time or place for them to do it then during the trial. And he was walking in and out of the courtroom in and out. I mean, this is reaching every day. But let me recant here. After a period of time, they made me a, um, a witness. And you know what this means. You cannot be in the courtroom during the session itself. However, uh, well, I, I'm a little, I'm a little hard-headed sometimes. I mean, yeah, I would go in there. I would stand at the door and listen to it sometime. I don't know if they recognized me or not because the courtroom. Oh yeah, they recognized me, but they didn't say anything. <laughs> they, they did not uh, know. They never put me out of there. And uh, oh, I listened to a lot of the, lot of the things that were going on in the courtroom. And due to my so limited knowledge about the court procedures and so forth, I, but there was really not much that I could do other than testify when they, when they put me on the stand and I just gave them the facts and I'm going to leave it at that. Anyway, they were convicted and they were both sentenced to death by lethal, lethal, lethal injection. That was Mauricio Brown and Kenneth Foster. The other two had been involved in other criminal activities from what I have heard and instead of one of the individual turned state evidence and uh, he <laughs> anyway he, he, he made it bad for the other two and uh, okay and he got life without parole the other one, I don't know, he's uh, incarcerated somewhere. I don't know what happened to him, literally, but I know he's there in Texas in one of the local prisoners somewhere in, in the general area of San Antonio. I don't know which one or anything. But anyway, that is sort of an idea of what the case was like. Now, here is something I would like for each of you to sort of be aware of, just what it is like being on death row. Some of you may know, some of you may not. I don't know in its entirety, but due to my visitations to Kenneth and to uh, Gabriel Gonzalez, I had visited with both of them. And 
it's this hell, folks. It's not an easy, it's not a comfortable place to be by any, none, you can't imagine what it is like there. However, they have to cope with it. They have a small area that they live in. That's their, that's their home there, where they spend 23 hours a day in there, and one hour for the supposed to be activities, but sometimes they don't even let them have activities or anything. They don't let them go on the court, on the basketball courts or anything of this nature. Even if they do, when they do go out, they have to go as an individual. They cannot participate in any activities with any of the other inmates and they are confined to their small area there. And their food, it's not too, it's not too good. One of the major food that, one of the major food, meat that they get is pork. So that's about all they get is pork. Because I think for that they grow those pigs or hogs or something somewhere in that general area, and then they have farms and so forth that they provide their other some of the other things that uh, they have there, but you say that when they get it, it's cold, and secondly, it is not cooked well cooked. In other words, pork. Um, anyway, a lot of people don't even eat pork, and uh, and some are due to the religion of certain individuals or certain religion, they do not eat pork. But hey, they get it; they have to eat it or starve. So that is as far as the food is concerned. Now. They stay in that confinement until such time that a date is set for their execution. I being, I consider myself the father of Kenneth Foster because, uh, Kenneth Foster Jr., because he has spent most, he did spend most of his life with me because I sort of, I raised him up because he lived with me. And his father, well, I cannot say, anyway, he's okay now, but the thing is, he had been in and out of incarcerated on several different occasions, and he got involved in the drug scene, but I don't have to bring this up, but I am not ashamed to bring it up because I would not want anyone else to fall into this category, whereas the drugs, uh, illegal drugs and so forth, they get involved in that, and what happens, the drug becomes their God, that is the thing that just, uh, it, it's not, the brains has no function. The drug is what leads them uh, from place to place and, and they make the decision because of what the drug itself do, that is done. Okay, now, I did want to make mention of the last thing and then I'm going to wrap it up. When the date is set, how does a parent or loved ones feel towards this? There's no way that you, I can tell you I can only let you know that there is a hell of heck of a feeling that you, I, I cannot explain it. The English language is not sufficient to describe the words or to use the proper adjective to describe just how I really felt. Your stomach turns, your appetite leaves you, you want to cry, you cry internally. You want to eradicate, erase it from your memory. But what do you do? You have to stand, you have to just cope with it. And then your spouse or your other loved ones, you try not to even mention it to them because you don't want to hear about it. Now, it's a lot more, but uh, when that day comes, when they say, 
it will be certain such a date and then when that particular this particular date was the 30th of August in 07 and we all gather there at Huntsville at the at the big red brick building it's been there for eons and the one good thing there were the individuals that are in here now that were there for that particular day just waiting to hear I mean, he's been denied on other occasions to hear if he is going to be exonerated or just what the situation is going to be in his case. So then when the, well, you just don't know what to do. You sit there, you wait, and then when they come with the same, when they do come. In this particular case, see, this is not going to happen in all cases. And I said being in Texas and knowing our governor, the government, the governor there, and his thoughts about the death penalty and so forth, he doesn't commute anyone. He doesn't take anyone off a of death row. He lets the punishment proceed. But I have to acknowledge that you that were, that demonstrated, you that, you did a hell of a lot for us. You saved Kenny, and I'm going to tell you, you all saved him. And then the media, all the 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 the, the uh, information that you fed to the media, this in itself had an effect. And I know that Perry was has sat there and looked at a lot of this, and had seen the things that we were doing and that you all were doing. And I know that it had an impression on him. Mm -hmm. Let me say just one more thing, and I'm going to sit down. Okay. And that is. We sent letters, we had individuals to send letters to the governor, to the, uh, uh, anyone that was involved in it, uh, you know, any of the, uh, uh, the, the prosecutors and so forth. And we sent uh, faxes, everything, any type of information that we could get there. And my son, Kenneth Foster Sr., who is Kenneth Foster, well, I don't have to tell you, that's his father. But anyway, he went to one of the senator's office and said, look, uh, the secretary said, uh, you would like to see Mr. Gonzalez, it was Henry B. Gonzalez's uh, uh, son that had taken his place. And he said, yes. I said, well, who are you? He said, well, I'm Kenneth Foster. She froze. He said that she sat there for, now this is with no exaggeration, for 30 seconds without saying a word, just a gap. And, and, and anyway, when she did come to herself, she said, uh, you're who? Who? Said, I'm Kenneth Foster Sr. Said, Kenneth Foster is my son. She said, I don't know how to express this, but we have never had as many inquiries relative to Kenneth Foster as we have had on him. So we received thousands and thousands of uh, communication relative to him. And this is why I say all of you, the whole, the world, it was sent not just in the United States, but the way we the whole world. Thank you.
The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.